They say that love is hard. We muscle through it because really good love is worth the hard. But I'm talking to you and you know who you are. You stay in your love even though they lie to you. It's your fault that they lost their job. It's your fault that they hit you. It's because you are selfish. And if you only loved them enough, you'd change. And things wouldn't be so bad anymore. Toxic relationships. You hear about them all the time. Or maybe you have been in one yourself. In researching this episode, I wanted to find some statistics on how many people said they were in a toxic relationship. That proved challenging because toxicity can take many forms. When going to our website for Willow House, our 45-day treatment program specifically for women here at MBH, you can find some examples of what a toxic relationship looks like. They include some relationships with a lack of mutual caring, paranoia, belittling, and what can complicate matters more is that those toxic relationships are not limited to an intimate one. It can show up in co-workers, friends, or even from family. And from the outside looking in comes the obvious question. If it's so bad, then why don't you just leave? But for many that find themselves in this position, it's not always that simple. As far as the relationship is concerned, the same reason people get stuck in intimate relationships as work is because we're comfortable in the known. And I say that as someone who was in a domestic violence situation, which was horribly damaging and toxic, clearly, quote, bad, but it's what I knew. And I had to get very honest. What am I getting out of staying in this job? What am I getting out of staying in this relationship? Not from a shamey, what's wrong with you place, not from a, well, it's your fault because you didn't leave the company, just from a, we need to understand behavioral function if we're going to have sustainable behavioral change. My name is Dominic Lawson. Let's go Beyond Theory. Welcome to Beyond Theory, a podcast powered by Meadows Behavioral Healthcare, that brings you in-depth conversations with first-hand insights from the front lines of mental health and addiction recovery. Today, we speak with Britt Frank about why we feel stuck in situations and what we can do about it. And later, Britt shares her experience at the Meadows and the impact it has made on her professionally, personally, and to her clients. Let's get out of the abstract and see how this applies in the real world. It's time to go beyond theory. There are many times why we may feel stuck in our lives. Reasons may include feeling unfulfilled in our career, lacking a clear sense of purpose, or sometimes it's because we are struggling with mental health issues. And that feeling can happen to anyone. Recently, January Jones, actress from the television series Mad Men, shared how she was feeling on Instagram. She said, quote, The last few years have been very difficult for everyone. It's been very hard to not wake up every day feeling sad, angry, helpless, or numb. I'm usually pretty good about finding the bright side of things, or the silver lining, or at the very least forcing myself to feel grateful and find something to look forward to but not lately. I feel stuck, end quote. And I think if you ask many people today, they would share January sentiment. So this leads us to a few questions. How does this happen? And if we go deeper, 
What is this idea of feeling stuck? So I think in a zeitgeist, being stuck is considered a moral issue or a character flaw. Also, how does the feeling of being stuck affect our bodies? If you're not grinding, if you're not hustling, if you're not doing every single thing all day, every day, there's something wrong with you. And what most people don't know is that stuck is often a function of the autonomic nervous system. This is Britt Frank, therapist and author of The Science of Stuck breaking through inertia to find your path forward. She is also an alum of the Meadows, which we will discuss later. But for now, she explains what happens to us when we have this feeling. So a brain that is stuck in freeze, a brain that is stuck in fight or flight, will look like someone who is, quote, lazy or, quote, unmotivated. But it's not a personal issue. It's a nervous system issue. And if we can take all of this morality off of the motivation procrastination thing, we can get moving. Again, if shame was efficient and if it worked, it, it would have worked by now. It doesn't. So my argument, just from an energy conservation efficiency standpoint, is think of stuck as a car with no gas, not that the car is bad. I love the car metaphor. As a teenager, when I first started driving, I would often think something was wrong with the family car when I would drive it for long periods. More often than not, I simply just needed to put gas in it. Similarly, as humans, we often don't have the energy to keep going or even maintain. And sometimes we feel as if we are broken and maybe even beyond repair. Maybe we just need to refuel when we feel stuck. But what does that look like? It's such a great question, right? Like, great, my car's not broken. Well, where is the gas station? And that's when we get into the language of safety. And the central nervous system doesn't respond to logic. And this whole, well, I'm logically safe. Logically, I have everything I need. What's wrong with me? That doesn't work. Validating a state of stuck is the number one first line intervention. It doesn't mean you need to stay there and it doesn't mean you're making excuses. But when you can say to yourself, when your self-talk shifts from what's wrong with me to, okay, my car is out of gas. So now I have some choices to make. Then it's what are three people, places, or things that will help me feel a little less bad in this moment? Not why am I like this? Switch your why to a what, what are three choices? And then do one. And if you're, you can't do one, make the choices smaller and then make them smaller again until you can get to a yes. Because once you say yes to anything, you're no longer stuck. Hmm, that certainly is interesting. Last week, we focused on hustle culture. And one of the things that we didn't discuss, but often see, are people telling you to find your why. What they mean is that when you find the why in what you're trying to accomplish, then you will push yourself to do just that. Accomplish it. But I have seen many of my friends get stuck in the why. But when Britt said, switch your why to a what, I wanted her to elaborate further. I'm certainly not stepping on the toes of brilliant people who write about the why is great. You do need to find your why if you're going to create meaning. But my issue with that is you cannot start with why, because why requires logic and analysis and prefrontal cortex activity, which is not available if you're stuck in fight, flight, freeze. So we have to start with the body's physiology. You cannot start with a why question if your body is freaking out. We have to start with, let's settle down your limbic system, what used to be called the limbic system. Let's turn off your amygdala. And then, so I like why as like a fourth, fifth, sixth piece of the process. But if you start with why, 
you're just going to spend. How often have, have you said or heard people say, I just don't know why I keep doing this. I know this relationship is bad for me. I know this career is going nowhere. I just don't know why. I just it's like, don't start with why. Again, shift your why to a what. What are three people, places or things that'll help me feel safe? And then once your brain turns back into logic land, then then yes, we do need the why. Then yes, let's analyze where this came from and what your why in the future is and what your family of origin dynamics in the past were. But starting with why, I will argue, is not useful if your brain is offline. When I think of people feeling stuck, two instances come to mind. The first one is when people feel stuck in a career. A recent study by Oracle shared that 75% of people feel stuck professionally. Secondly, I think about people feeling stuck in a relationship, but I will come back to that a bit later. But as far as feeling professionally hindered, I would see talented people that would want a raise or a promotion, but would never say anything, or they would feel they need to go back to school or get a certification. Now, the hustle culture side of me would be like, just ask for the promotion or just ask for the raise. But Britt quickly says that there is wisdom in the approach they are taking and that maybe there is another person keeping them on the hamster wheel. So the first thing is sometimes there's wisdom in those stalling tactics. It might very well be that you need more training or that you need more experience or that you need mentorship. So the first thing I would say is let's challenge how true is this thought that you're thinking in some cases for some people that's wisdom like no you're not ready right now and so you need to go do abc before you can do that in other cases it's that you're working for a narcissistic sociopath who is going to like completely punish you for daring to act and some people say to me i just i feel so stalled in my career i'm like no you're working for someone who is a really unskillful suboptimal human and that's why you're stuck so assuming that you don't need more training assuming that your boss is not in fact a monster then we get into okay now we're into questions of worthiness and deserving and belonging and again that is a nervous system that tends to get locked down and freeze and we can work with that and the number one way to work with that is find people who you trust to mirror your reality back to you like no you are so ready no you have enough training no like you can do this we all have imposter syndrome so if we wait for imposter syndrome to calm down no one would ever do anything going back to that second item of note feeling stuck in relationships i've been in a few of those all of them weren't necessarily toxic but i stayed longer than i should have because i was comfortable and it was what i knew the anxiety of going back into the dating pool was a bit too much for me but for some staying in a relationship, it can be detrimental. Unfortunately, even deadly. Julie Woodruff from PBS NewsHour explains. Police have long established the connection between domestic violence and murder. But as John Yang tells us, a new analysis by the Washington Post finds domestic violence plays an even larger role in the deaths of far too many women. The numbers are staggering. Nearly half 46% of more than 4,400 women killed in the past decade died at the hands of an intimate partner. And Britt is familiar with this from both a clinical and a personal perspective. As far as the relationship is concerned, the same reason people get stuck in intimate relationships as work is because we're comfortable in the known. We're comfortable in what's familiar. And I say that as someone who was in a domestic violence situation, which was horribly damaging and toxic, clearly, quote, bad, but it's what I knew. And I had to get very honest. And obviously with the Meadows help, it was there's a function to this. 
What am I getting out of staying in this job? What am I getting out of staying in this relationship? Not from a shamey, what's wrong with you place, not from a, well, it's your fault because you didn't leave the company, just from a, we need to understand behavioral function if we're going to have sustainable behavioral change. So far, we have talked about feeling stuck in a job or a relationship, but you know very well listening to our podcast here at MBH that you can feel stuck in addiction also. You will hear more of those in-depth journeys this summer on season two of Recovery Replay. And speaking of our sister show, sometimes we share the spiritual side of recovery, speaking with Chaplain Kevin Burkis. And that got me to thinking, is there a spiritual perspective of feeling stuck in addiction as you seek recovery? In a sermon from Pastor Tony Evans from the Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship in Dallas, Texas, the answer is yes. Many of God's children are spiritual POWs, prisoners of war, trapped in a sin that they have been unable to break, trapped in a situation that is contrary to the will and word of God from which they have not been able to escape. Whether it is alcoholism or drugs or pornography or gluttony or profanity, whether it is lashing out in anger and wrath and inability to control one's temper, they find themselves caught and unable to get out. Britt adds that not having basic needs can keep you stuck in addiction. And as a recovering addict, I'm very familiar from the clinical and the personal. The first big problem is lack of access. Not everyone can afford therapy. Not everyone can afford trauma-specialized treatment. And so if you have an addiction and you don't have power and you don't have running water and you don't have access to your basic needs, there are some things to figure out. And again, it's not about being a personal character flaw. It's not an excuse. It's just we need to look at your ecosystem. And if your basic needs are not being met, being able to successfully and sustainably manage an addiction is going to be very difficult, not impossible, but difficult. At the top of the show, we use the metaphor of a car running out of gas that leads us to feeling stuck in our lives. Britt details that our body can also serve as a way to get unstuck. And while she sticks with the car theme, she explains that it can present itself in the form of something we are trying to get a handle on in the first place. I'll preface by saying I hate feeling anxious. I've had anxiety my entire life. I've had depression my whole life. Like I do not enjoy the sensations of anxiety. It's terrifying to experience what people call panic, quote, attacks. But the again, the function of anxiety, not to harm us. If a smoke alarm goes off in a building, it's going to be loud and annoying and awful. And if you don't know what's happening, it's going to be frightening. But the alarm is not the problem. When your check engine light comes on, the light is not the problem. Those are signals saying, hey, there is a problem. So anxiety is very much the check engine light. It's the smoke detector. It's the alarm system. But we all are so unreasonably so terrified of the sensations of anxiety, we think Anxiety is the problem. I can disable the light, the check engine light on my car, but I'm going to have a bigger problem if I disable the light. So when we numb our anxiety and we no longer have those signals pointing towards problems, we're going to be in trouble very quickly. So I don't like anxiety either, but we need it and it's useful. And it's tricky because sometimes my brain tells me, you know, meth would be a good idea right now or doing this would be a good idea right now. And it's not always accurate. But anxiety, even when we're misperceiving danger in the environment, is still something to be honored and validated first 
and then worked with so we can make sure the alarm isn't going off every time we take a step. You know, we only want the alarm going off when there's an actual fire. And as many of us seek to get unstuck in the new year with resolutions, Britt says that we should pump the brakes a bit and maybe give ourselves a little more time and grace. New Year's resolutions should be made in April. Because think about what's happening fourth quarter of any calendar year, right? Fourth quarter is the holidays. What happens during the holidays? We're all stressed. We're all overwhelmed. We're all doing the consumer thing. We're all doing the family thing. We're all regressing into younger childhood states going, mom, where are you? Why don't you love me? And dad, we have three months of spinning our wheels on this ridiculous treadmill. And then by January, our adrenals are depleted and our nervous systems are frazzled. That is not a good time to start a fitness routine or launch a business or clean up your eating or whatever the thing is. By January, we're fried. So if I had my way, and it's actually gonna be in my second book, after fourth quarter, use the first quarter of the year to rest and reset. Use January, February, and March to really like lean into self-care, to really slow yourself down. And if you do that by April, you're gonna have so much energy, whatever resolutions you wanna set, April is the sweet spot for nailing those kinds of things. As we begin to close, I wanted Britt to share her experience of what it was like being at the Meadows. It's a big part of who she is personally and as a clinician. I think the Meadows is the most magical place on earth. Forget Disneyland. Like if everybody could go and spend time at the Meadows, I think the world would be such a better place and I'd be out of a job and it would be great and I'd go do something else. There's so many things I love about, I tell people the Meadows is the mothership for all of the work that I do, the somatic work, the internal family systems work, the polyvagal work. They have just got what they do down to, they've distilled it. They had created a program, you know, Survivors was the hardest, one of the hardest weeks of my life. And it was talk about unpleasant truth. It was like puke all day, every day. And that's the stuff that moves us forward. So, you know, again, whether it's the full program or any of the workshops, and I'm not affiliate. I have to tell all my clients, like, I sound like an infomercial, but it's not because I'm affiliated in any way other than I am such a believer in what happens at that facility. And half of my book is me just, here's my show and tell of what I learned at the Meadows. Like the science of stuff is, and everything's properly cited, of course, but it's like, here's what everybody at the Meadows has said. Like, and here's how to create actionable steps for yourself. If you can't go there, this is what you can do. I say this in a non-dramatic, non-histrionic way. I don't think I would have survived my story had it not been for the Meadows. It's funny. Brent mentioned the Meadows as if it was like Disneyland. And I had the privilege of representing Meadows Behavioral Healthcare at Disney World at a big mental health conference. We had a table set up with information about our facilities and a sweet pair of cowboy boots we like to raffle off at events like these. But also was a display of all of our senior fellows, Dr. Peter Levine, Dr. Claudia Black, Resma Menicum, and more. And I remember one person coming up to me asking, wait, are those your senior fellows at MBH? And I go, yeah, they are. And he was like, wow, man, they're like the 92 Dream Team. This is in reference to the 1992 United States Olympic basketball team, often called the greatest team ever assembled. And when you look at our senior fellows, I can see the comparison. As a person who came to MBH without a background in behavioral health, I knew we had something special here. But when you hear comments like that and Britt's testimonial, you understand quickly that the work we do here 
It's life-changing. It's funny. Whenever I do intervention, I don't like to do interventions and I don't do them often. However, whenever I do them, everyone ends up going to the meadows. And I think it's hilarious that they fight me on it. And I always tell them, I'm like, you know, I promise you in three weeks, you're going to call me and beg me to not ever have to leave. And it, it just cracks me up when people fight against going. I'm like, you have no idea. And so far in a decade of this work, it has never failed that every person that has gone there on my suggestion has called me and gone, oh my God, what did I, why did I wait this long? Don't ask why, you did and it's okay, it's fine. But it really is, I think that, you know, the best of the best, the all-star team and everything I do personally and clinically comes from people that are fellows there. Lastly, Britt shares that we all have our stuff that we are working on. And even if everyone doesn't understand it, it's very real. I mean, the time at the Meadows, the book, all of the work, I can distill the the one thing I wish people could walk away either from the Meadows or from working with me or whatever is there's no such thing as crazy. Everybody's stuff makes sense in context. Just because you don't know why it's happening doesn't mean there's not a reason. And you may not ever know the why, but if you can tell yourself there is no such thing as a crazy person, I am not crazy. My stuff makes sense. My stress makes sense. My stuck makes sense. My depression makes sense. Doesn't mean to stay there, but if you can remind yourself often, there's no such thing as crazy. I make sense. Things can shift and they do. Beyond Theory, powered by Meadows Behavioral Healthcare, is produced and hosted by me, Dominic Lawson. You can discover more at beyondtheorypodcast.com. Special thanks to Britt Frank, therapist and author of The Science of Stuck, breaking through inertia to find your path forward. To find out more about her work and her book, go to thegreenhousekc.com. Sources to create this episode include The Korean Vegan, Essence Magazine, TonyEvans.org, PBS NewsHour, Oracle, Yahoo News, and MSN.com. Finally, thank you for listening, and I hope you join us next time for another episode of Beyond Theory.